Welcome to episode two of the Sharp Football Best Ball Show. I am your host, Todd Burrows, and you can find me on Twitter at BestBallNFL. Let me know you listen to the pod. I will absolutely follow you back. And today we're going to be covering some of the basics for best ball. And it will apply to both new people to best ball and also will apply to people who've played it in the past. My special guest is TJ Hernandez of 4 for 4 Football. TJ is an amazing follow at Twitter on TJ at TJ Hernandez, and he's one of my favorite analysts for Daily Fantasy and brings tremendous research to everything he does. And I'm excited to bring him in on uh, once we get going. But please, if you would be so kind and if you enjoy the podcast, if you would rate and review it and say you enjoyed the best ball show, that would be very much appreciated. And we can also be found on YouTube. And if you subscribe to the Sharp Football Analysis channel, that also would really help the pod. If you have any questions, please feel to ask it on YouTube, and I will always respond. If you're new to best ball and listening, my favorite thing about fantasy has always been drafting. I call best ball the one-night stand of fantasy football, as you get all the joy of drafting without the responsibility of managing a team. Last year, I slept with, I mean, drafted about 600 teams and enjoyed every minute of it. And I look forward to sharing, as we move forward this season, my knowledge and hope that you also will start caring about best ball and getting into some of these great tournaments. And now I want to bring in TJ. TJ, how you been? And what is going on over at 4 for 4 as it relates to best ball? Todd, what's going on, buddy? Uh, I've been been great uh, easing back into these best ball streets since uh, that's what we're talking about today, but been enjoying the offseason uh, and, and just getting ready for the NFL draft uh, over at 4 for 4. Uh, as it relates to best ball, we've been working on obviously a lot of the uh, player movement since free agency, how that's relating to best ball. Uh, as I said, ramping up for the NFL draft, how that's relating to best ball, how we're drafting, already talking about player values uh, here in April, which, you know, the, the well-adjusted people usually aren't doing until July or August, but uh, we, we're out in those streets. So we're uh, uh, getting ready for all of these big tournaments to launch. I know underdogs in their super flex tournament mode right now, but uh, uh, sites like FFPC and the other big sites like drafters and, and DraftKings will be launching uh, some pretty big tournaments. I'm guessing after the NFL draft as well. So just uh, getting ready for all of that to, to kick off, man. Yeah, the regular FFPC tournament, uh, the early one has about 80 people left in it, and they sold out their Superflex at 35 bucks, and they have launched their full one. So you can take advantage of that early if you are a sick pup. I'm not that sick, TJ. I'm not a Superflex guy. I don't like messing with more uh, ADPs. I feel yeah. that it takes me away from my core and what I'm best at. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? I've I've typically kind of stayed in my lane too, but uh, I've I've been dabbling in the underdog superflex contests over the last few weeks, and uh, I've I've actually been enjoying it a bit. It kind of makes you recalibrate your brain. Uh, it really switches. Like obviously, overall ADPs get switched up a lot, but but things like how many players you're you're playing at each position. Um, just 
different techniques, roster allocation techniques. It really forces you to kind of go back to the basics, which I think when we're we're caught in our little Twitter bubble and, and we're getting so much information thrown at us, it could be uh, easy to get caught in the nuance and, and kind of forget those fundamentals. So uh, it, it does bring you back a little bit to those fundamentals. So I, I think playing those over the last uh, the last few weeks will probably, uh, I don't think it'll hurt my game in their traditional um, best ball drafts. But I mean, those those super flex are, are still, shoot, best ball in general is still niche. So super flex best ball is the niche of the niche. Um, so mo- most people are still going to be focused on these traditional leagues, I think. Yeah, I'm going to have to bring someone on for best uh, super flex strategy yeah. at some point because I, I need to learn if I'm going to dabble. I, I don't like not having edges. And you would think for with sure. even less information out there, TJ, there, there's, there could be some real edges in Superflex to find. I think gaming in, in general, whether it be, um, you know, fantasy sports, um, DFS, um, uh, prop sites like Underdog, who, who has best ball and prize picks, uh, it, it's going to be more and more about finding these edges, whether it be a, a niche game or a niche sport. Uh, I think that's where in, in the long term, a lot of the money is going to be made. So I do think it's going to be valuable to start dipping your toe in, into uh, things like different sports, different games that people just haven't put a lot of work into yet. Yep. All right. So let's get into the basics of standard yeah. 18 round. You know, it used to be MFL 10. There were 20 mm-hmm. rounds, but you would draft defenses. Yep. Um, so, you know, there's been a, a almost you know, almost 10 years of study on the 18 round drafts. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly roster construction is the the thing that I've seen more articles on than any other subject. How do you view basic roster construction in 18 rounds drafts as the ones that we find on underdog? Yeah, and Underdog, I think it's worth noting, is a half PPR site. So compared to sites like DraftKings or, or FFPC, which are, are full PPR, and FFPC throwing tight end premium into the mix, which which muddies things up even more. Uh, we're talking about half PPR on, on Underdog 18-round leagues. And I think uh, this is the, you know, we're, we're talking elementary concepts here, which, again, I think it's really important to cover these fundamentals. Um, this is really the skeleton, the backbone of how successful you're going to be at um at best ball on underdog specifically and and like anything if you don't have your fundamentals down it's going to bleed into how good you are at these more um advanced things like advanced roster construction um how that fits into your overall plan how you build a player portfolio um so i just kind of think of roster construction as the or or positional allocation what positional allocation is kind of like the range of how many players you spend in each position roster construction how all those things fit together so we'll use those interchangeably but that's usually how i define them um but, but I think it gives us a really good framework of how we should be thinking about our drafts. If we're coming away from drafts with um, more than three quarterbacks, more than three tight ends, um, or less than two at either position, and then at running back, if you're going outside of that, the range is very little bit, but for running back, I'll say that four to seven range and, and at wide receiver, six to 10 range. If we have some extreme builds in there, but that's really where we should be fitting our um, our builds into. If you're outside of those, almost ever um, you're, you're probably doing something wrong and you should at least understand the whys of uh, why we're drafting that way. 
Yeah, I agree. I've always compared uh, basic roster construction to guardrails on a highway. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm, sure. You know, with two to three quarterbacks, five to six running backs, seven to nine wide receivers, mm -hmm. and two to three tight ends being within the guardrails. And if you're going to be outside of that guardrail, like you mentioned, four running backs, I mean, yeah. Justin Herzig did take down BB1 with that strategy. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, it but you, I think the further you get from the guardrails, the more you have to have researched why you're doing it yeah. and have a plan for it. So like with Justin, his four running back, he was pretty much done taking running backs uh, around round eight to 10. And he had a lot of equity in the, the first three to four round running backs. And his theory was if I draft 150 teams and 100 of them have the four running backs, some of them are going to stay healthy. And that's going to give me an edge on the field. Um, your thoughts on the guardrail analogy and um, how it ties into everything we've talked about so far? I actually think it's perfect because if, if we talk about the um, kind of the structure that you laid out, uh, a little tighter than the range I mentioned that five to six running back range, seven to nine wide receiver range. We'll just, we'll talk about those two positions because if you're going outside of two to three uh, quarterbacks or, or tight ends almost ever, it's just uh, probably going to be very bad. But, but if you're talking about, you know, the highway or the freeway, you want to stay in those three, four lanes. And if you're ever going outside of that, if you're going in the emergency lanes, it's very rare, right? You're only doing it in extreme circumstances. And uh, I, I think with these extreme roster constructions like a uh, a four running back like hyper fragile build or something like that or a, a zero running back build where, where maybe you'll get into like a seven running back build because you don't take a running back till the eighth or ninth round you, you i think people can really get intrigued by those those are the type of roster constructions that are going to get a lot of clicks right zero rb is just always going to be a very uh clicky thing to talk about and because of that it's going to get a lot of ink and people are going to uh, may, maybe overestimate how often they need to be doing those things. Uh, I'm still kind of working through some of the data in Best Ball Mania 3, but but going back to, to last year, Best Ball Mania 1, Best Ball Mania 2 data going into Best Ball Mania 3, I mean, barely 1% of, of teams were using zero running back, for example. And, and even though it can have a very high hit rate, very high success rate, you still don't need to be using it in something like 20% of your drafts. If you're using it in say five to 10% of your drafts, you're still doing it well more often than the field. So if you're using the, a, a profitable extreme strategy, you still don't need to be doing it that often. Um, to, to be doing it more than the field. It's very similar to like a, a DFS concept where you're thinking about how can we be higher or lower than the field? It's not that hard to do that with extreme roster construction. So we really should be uh, almost always fitting into these two to three quarterbacks, five to six running backs, seven to nine wide receivers, two to three tight end ranges. Um, you, you really need to have a good reason to go outside of those, especially um, if you're, if you're, um, if you're really playing high volume and understanding how often you, you are, you are uh, drafting each type of team. You know, if you're drafting two or three teams the whole year, you know, do whatever you want. Yeah, I, I think that um, that's fantastic points. It, it aligns with my thoughts on it. Um, and most of the research that's out there, <clears throat> if you stay within the guardrails, you're talking about a 1% to a 2% maximum difference between the advance rates 
uh, from, say, yeah. two quarterbacks to three quarterbacks. And that's without even taking into consideration when the quarterbacks were taken, you know, mm -hmm. when you drafted your running backs. Um, it's not enough. You know, I hear some people say, well, I only draft two quarterbacks. And I, I mean, I tend to be more of a two quarterback guy than a three quarterback guy, TJ. But if I don't get one in the first eight, nine rounds, and I, you know, I'm perfectly willing to take a third in that, um, in that range. Yeah. Um, is that kind of in line again with how you look at uh, the quarterback position? Yeah, um, a, a lot has changed in recent years for a couple of reasons. One, uh, a, a lot of the the data we have going back to early days of best ball are within this realm of um, I'll call them cash games, but just normal 12, 12 team leagues where now a lot of the data is shifting over to these large field tournaments. So we are going to have some differences when we look at, at data between those and, and what is most optimal. And also the, just the QB calculus in terms of ADP and when we should draft quarterbacks has changed in the last couple of years with elite quarterbacks going earlier and earlier and earlier, you know, five years ago, it, it was, you, you could wait forever on a quarterback. Now the, the difference, the drop off between, you know, the top seven or eight quarterbacks in the field is, is tremendous compared to, to what it used to be. And ADPs are accounting for that. Um, but to, to your question, yeah, two, two quarterbacks is, has typically been where I lean because there is just such a clear advantage when it comes to winning a 12 team league or uh, things like advancing to the, second round of large field right. tournaments um you know getting as many teams as possible into that dance so to speak is really important and the reason we kind of stick to this two to three quarterback range is it has a lot to do with filling out that flex position right we want to maximize our opportunities to get big points in that flex position and if you're going outside of this three quarterback range less running backs less wide receivers and to a lesser extent fewer tight ends to fill that flex spot uh, i think I don't have the data in front of me. I think running backs and wide receivers are filling out the flex and just let's just say best ball mania, like something like 90 ish percent of the time. So you want more opportunities for those guys to hit, right? For, for you to have three stud running backs filling out your, your spots. If you take a fourth quarterback, you're minimizing those opportunities. Um, but for the, for the two to three quarterback discussion with any position, it comes down to draft capital, right? The earlier you're, investing in a position for the most part the less players of that position you're going to need especially if we're getting these super elite josh allen jalen hurts types whereas if you are are waiting or, or missing for whatever reason um on those early guys three makes more sense and i think for people to say i only ever take two quarterbacks that's really short-sighted and probably a really big error because every draft is going to be really different. Um, you're not going to control a, a lot of things. You're not going to control where you're drafting your, your, your draft selection, whether one through 12, and you're not going to control what other drafters are doing. There's drafts where the other 11 players in your league are just going to go crazy at quarterback. And if you're not adjusting to that, then you're making a big mistake, right? If they're taking these top nine guys way earlier than you want, you should probably come away with a, a three quarterback draft. Um, and, and another consideration is stacking. I won't get into it too much here, but uh, Mike Leone over ETR has already put out some, some work on stacking uh, from best ball mania three and discussed how there might be some upside 
uh, stacking upside late in these tournament rounds to having three quarterbacks. We've seen two of the last three Dust Ball Mania tournament winners use a three quarterback strategy. Um, but from a uh, expected value, 12 team advance rate standpoint, two quarterback is pretty dominant. I, I don't know if I'm like necessarily 75% two quarterback, but maybe like 60, 40, 65, 35. I think that's where I was right in line where I am. Yeah. That's where I was at last year. I think I was 60, 64, something like that. 64% two quarterback. Yeah, that's almost exactly. So one of the big mistakes I do see people make with basic roster construction is if you, you know, and it's going to be acerbated this year because Mm -hmm. where in the past you could get a top three or four quarterback anywhere from round three to round five. Now those guys are going at the end of the second, early third round. Um, To me, if I take a stud quarterback in a, in a 18 round draft, I am not taking a third, Uh, you know, and it's kind of that old DFS thought where if, you know, the way you have to play each lineup is if that lineup succeeds, right? right? In other words, if I take equity on Josh Allen in the second round, I'm building that team as if Josh Allen is healthy and having a good year, because if I spend a second or third round pick on him, I need him to have a good round, a uh, good year. Um, would, would you agree with that? Yeah, again, especially at, at the onesie positions, and and I'll just kind of use quarterback and tight end for the same example here. Um, if you are spending a, a top three round pick on those guys, not only are you expecting them to have a good year, you're expecting them uh, to use them in most of your weeks. And when I say use them, obviously these these best ball lineups are optimized every single week. Um, so the the player, the contribution from those players should almost exclusively be happening from those guys. If, if you're drafting a, uh, and, and again, if we're talking about these large field tournaments, if you're drafting a Josh Allen, as you said, and he's only contributing the points, uh, you know, 45, 50% of the time while you're, your quarterback two, or, or if you, I, I think mistakenly take a core quarterback three or contributing more, um, not only are you kind of playing it safe for no reason, but that team is probably already dead in the water in the tournament anyway. Right. So, so like, what are you really, you're not really accomplishing much by drafting elite at a onesie position. The onesies being the quarterback and the tight ends and and then playing it safe by getting a third guy, uh, uh, playing it safe is just never going to work out in any type of large field, top heavy payout structure, whether it be best ball or DFS or, or any other type of big tournament. Yeah. And I've, I've had people go the other direction on me and say, well, since I need Josh Allen or Travis Kelsey to have a big year, I'm going to stop at one. And the numbers are, you know, just don't bear that out that I've seen. Have you have you seen anything different? I haven't seen anything different with, with one um, with one quarterback or one tight end, because even though we we don't necessarily want to go like Josh Allen and the three quarterbacks or, or Travis Kelsey and then three tight ends, what that second quarterback is or the second onesie position is going to have the opportunity for us to do is give us um, a chance to be different in the, let's just say the final round, the week 17, the championship round of the draft, right? If, if we are of the tournament, I'm sorry. If Josh Allen goes absolutely nuclear all year and we're going up against 
last year there was 470 finals teams. If we're going up against, I don't know, 250 other Josh Allen teams, just say he runs super pure in the playoffs too. I mean, you're, how, how is your team going to be that much different than the other Josh Allen teams? Well, one easy way to do it is if I, you have, I don't know, a Ryan Tannehill who goes off in, in week uh, 17 and, and they just have a different QB2, right? We're not all going to have the same QB2. So if we're thinking about how to be different in those late rounds, that second quarterback or second tight end could be the difference in the championship week. So, um, yeah, you're not really giving yourself as many outs in, in those one uh, position builds. Yeah, I'm always against just taking one. Um, it doesn't make sense. I mean, I did a I, pretty in-depth uh, study this year of floor in the, uh, best ball. And even, you know, there were only like five, six guys who gave you 90% or better usable weeks. Yeah. Right. I, I, I will. Oh, sorry. Were you going to say more? No, go ahead. I was, I will say, yeah. It's nice that kind of, someone else cut me off instead of me always cutting someone <laughs> no, else. No, well, your your point of those, like the the those max usable weeks, just kind of triggered uh, a thought. Is that if you are somebody that is going to like leaning towards that one quarterback idea, I I, I think something that you might think about doing it for uniqueness sake, um, and this might begin a little too in the trenches of, of tournament strategy, but. Uh, lining up quarterbacks two quarterbacks that have the same bye week instead of, you know, people just naturally aren't going to have two quarterbacks with the same bye week. So if you are someone that thinks a one quarterback build can work, maybe a unique way to have two quarterbacks is to have those quarterbacks with the same bye week. Cause that's just not going to be a, a combo that shows up a lot. Yep. Whatever and you mentioned, schedule, Mike, obviously you mentioned Mike Leone and his article. I mean, it's fabulous stuff. Um, Mike's going to join us on June 13th. And we're going to we're going to get into that in in great detail. And I also want to ask him as a numbers guy, you know, with a DFS background like you, uh, we're going to focus a little bit on uh, what does apply from DFS Mm -hmm. and what is more challenging to apply. Um, So I think uh, people should keep an eye out for that. Um, Running back seems in the NFL to be less in favor and we're seeing the same thing in drafting. We're seeing running yeah. backs drop. Way, you know, a couple of years ago, all the wide receivers went up. We, uh, you mentioned quarterbacks went up big this year. There was another jump two years ago. Um, and running back is the position that's falling back. Do mm-hmm. you think that's a mistake in a half PPR format? Um, I mean, we, we can only do so much like ADP is going to be ADP, right? These things are are typically going to be cyclical. So whether it's right or wrong for running backs to be dropping an ADP, um, I I don't think that we're going to, to get a lot of value out of trying to determine that. I think it's kind of more important to understand what that means for while we are drafting and what we can do to, um, to maximize these opportunities that that are happening. I, I think the first thing that we could, kind of do is look as to the why of these um these cycles and i think one of the whys this year of why we're seeing these running back prices falling these adps falling a little bit um is because we saw a lot of running back heavy builds last year uh and a lot of those didn't fare well now again 
the the champion did have um two stud running backs on his team one of them hit austin eckler for Karain's team but uh what happens when we have these running back heavy years a lot of running backs going in the first two rounds it means that a lot of these fringe guys these fringe running back twos are getting pushed up in adp probably where they shouldn't be because uh people are are worried about you know, position scarcity and getting a starting running back. And, and we're getting a lot of running backs at the back end that aren't um, really that are being drafted higher than they should be. When those teams don't hit, then it's kind of a, it's kind of a tidal wave of everybody saying, I, I don't want these running backs. So how can we take advantage of these things? Well, if ADP kind of holds like it does now, and um, running backs are much cheaper than they haven't been in recent years, then, we can take advantage of some of the percept public perceptions that have, have kept people from drafting in certain ways. Something that comes to mind is like the running back dead zone, right? Those rounds three through six running backs have kind of been a, a hard no for a lot of hardcore drafters. Now, if running back values falling in theory, these dead zone running backs should be much stronger, right? Because these are running backs that were going maybe early to late second round now going late third round. These are fringe RB ones going much later. Um, I think another thing that we should really be understanding, I think where people, whether it be, this is really to all positions. I think people just make huge errors in their positional allocation based on draft capital going into BBM three. And, and again, I'll, I'll, I'll look at this um, a little bit closer for BBM three results, but we saw, Teams that drafted running backs early, say two running backs in the first three rounds, the field still drafts too many running backs. We see too many of those teams taking six or even seven running backs instead of like being closer to five most more of the time where a lot of zero running back teams aren't taking enough running backs. So I, I think people really need to understand that however you are using this draft capital on these positions for this conversation, running backs, that should really be forming how you are allocating resources to that position throughout the rest of the draft. I, I think that is just an amazing point. Um, it's two core things that I thought of while you were uh, discussing it. Uh, one is that you know, uh, and this is more, we'll cover this later when we get into advanced roster construction in another pod, but you really should weight, you know, W-E-I-G-H-T, your position groups in your mind as you draft mm -hmm. and make sure that there's enough, it, 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 less important are the numbers than the amount of weight you put in each group. Sure. Um, so I, I agree with that 100%. The other thing is, you know, you were talking about dead zone running backs. The reason they were so bad is because the top tier wide receivers dropped off at a certain point and you right. were exchanging one of those guys for a guy who was very speculative, right? Yep. Now for me, like recently I got, uh, I did an FFPC draft where at the, I think it was the nine ten turn, I took James Cook and Damian Harris, Right two Buffalo Bill guys, and I feel like I get a great floor from both of them at that ADP, and then if one of them gets hurt, now I might have a third-round running back value that I drafted at, at that spot. So I really do think that um, you know taking one anchor running back in the first three rounds and then finding that really nice area 
where the wide receivers have dropped off and you've got guys with locked in roles, but some uncertainty um, in, as far as how much they're going to uh, do. Uh, like a Damian Harris is a guy I'm very high on right now at ADP. Um, I think is a pretty good strategy. Thoughts on that? Uh, well, you you mentioned anchor running back, and I, I, again, I, I think it's kind of it's going to vary draft to draft for me. But but some form of anchor running back is a strategy that um, I favored last year a lot. Um, me too. Uh, even even a, a, what I called a superhero strategy last year, uh, where you are drafting two running backs in the first first couple of rounds, I do think again that is a very strong strategy. Again, I, I just think people uh, execute these things very poorly. If you're committing to an anchor running back or a superhero running back strategy, yeah. as you said, if you are taking that strategy, if it does fall into your draft you really need to be committing to it. Right. So I, I think people made errors, let's say last year, even the year before is taking like a Derrick Henry and then getting to round four or five and, and taking a, um, a running back that maybe you could get the same value in rounds seven or eight. So again, and that's even more so on in these superhero builds where you're taking two in the first couple of rounds. Um, I think you really do need to commit to some of these strategies if you are going going to uh, implement them. And I think a lot of people fail to really do that. Again, going back to this perception of uh, safety in your drafts where you're not really creating safety. All you're really doing is creating these mediocre flat lineups that aren't giving you these big spikes that we're really looking for in these large field tournaments. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just for example, to build on what TJ was saying, which is just an amazing point. I do all different kinds of drafts, but if I take a running back in the first and second round, immediately the thought that goes in my head is I'm pro I don't want to take another running back to about the 10th round. Sure. Right. Because I, I want, you know, I, I, this team is built on the assumption that those two guys are going to be healthy and are going to have a good year. Right. Yeah. And so I want some upside running backs late to bat now, and there's a very good chance I stop. I will stop at five on that team. So that was TJ's other big point is yeah. depending on how much equity you have early should affect well, if you're a five or six running back guy, if I take two early, I'm definitely stopping at five. Did I get that right, TJ? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I just kind of thought of while you were saying that is that now – we have three years of large field tournament data from underdog specifically. And obviously the sizes of the tournaments are different, but you're going to see a lot of analysis this uh, off season from, from BBM three and from the lineup that won it all. Uh, I, we have, as the data set grows, I think we should be looking at the full data set of these large field tournaments because they haven't been around for that long and looking for trends that are persisting throughout the tournaments. Again, obviously we aren't going to be able to control things like this year's ADP, but where can we find these trends, trend lines, these things that go through the tournaments? And I think looking at things like you said, like these anchor running back approaches, if we see data that is consistent throughout all three tournaments, really focusing, and I'm not saying that is, I'm just using it as an example, but really understanding that those are the things that we should be honing in on, not necessarily like, should I be taking a running back in the fourth round or not? Because again, those things are going to be pretty fluid from year to year. Yeah. So uh, let's move over to wide receiver. I think the, you know, wide receiver prices have gone up. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you certainly need to account for the difference on underdog where uh, you have to start three wide receivers each week. Yes. Um, and then you want, you know, the, 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 the uh, ability of a wide receiver to go off for your flex, especially in the tournament. Um, but the biggest thing is with quarterback pricing also going up, it makes it harder to, to stack quarterbacks with their first mm-hmm. option. And yeah. I was just, you know, the, the big question is how much value are you willing to give up for a stack uh, with the first option? And even beyond that, um, I'd like your thoughts because I see people reaching sometimes two, three rounds to yeah. get their stack. And what to me at that point, whatever you have gained by stacking, you're giving up by you know, losing value. Yeah. I mean, this is, um, this is a really dense topic stacking. I I did a a series called the, the best ball mania Bible last year. And this was its own, uh, piece of, of the six piece series, just stacking alone, thousands of words on it. It could be its own podcast. Uh, I I think that for the, uh, for our purposes here, for the most part, especially in these earlier rounds, let's call it just like the single digit rounds. I, I think we should really just be thinking about these elite stacks um, in terms of, of when it comes to you. We, we don't need to be forcing these. Uh, I mean, an extreme example, like a Josh Allen, Stefan Diggs, that, that could be your first two picks, right? I don't think you need to be forcing it. If it happens naturally, if you're getting them at their ADP, sure. If it works out great, you can adjust your, your, um, draft uh, the rest of the way, knowing that you have those first two picks. We are, especially for us high volume guys, we're going to have enough drafts where those stacks are naturally going to fall into place themselves. We don't need to be forcing them. We also need to be thinking about what we are really accomplishing with stacking, not just stacking elite guys together, which is going to cost you a lot of, of equity, but are you, are you game stacking? Are you team stacking? Are you te- stacking for, for week 17? And you can accomplish a lot of these things in the later rounds. I, I think people get too caught up in the elite stacks. Let's stick with a Stefan Diggs and a Josh Allen. They're going to get theirs for the most part, right? Obviously for these huge weeks when it happens together. Yeah. It, it's going to be nice to pair them together, but Stefan Diggs is going to have big games because he's such a big target share guy for Josh Allen. Um, even if Josh Allen isn't the, the QB one by a mile in a given week, Stefan Diggs can be the wide receiver one. Josh Allen's going to get a lot of big weeks because he does so much through the uh, air and on the ground that he's going to get his without Stefan Diggs. It's these ancillary players that really get brought along with their quarterback, right? The the wide receiver three, the tight end that isn't getting 100 targets. When Josh Allen blows up, those guys are going to get elevated the most. Not only are they going to get elevated more than they would when Josh Allen has big weeks, but when we get into those later weeks, those are going to be the difference makers. Like a lot of teams are going to have Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs together in the the finals if, if they blow up all year. How many of those teams are going to have Khalil... Shakir on their team, uh, you know, for example, um, one of my, so, one of my teams would. I love <laughs> yeah, I love yeah, Khalil yeah, Shakir. Yeah. I think he's sure, a baller. sure. But but just an example, like like fewer teams than than absolutely teams, right. And if and, you've got the three of them together, mm-hmm. 
then yeah. you know um i um zandemir a very good uh dfs player talks about in dfs if you add that third piece to the stack you know mm -hmm. you might go from 17 percent ownership on a stack down to two percent just by right. putting in a third piece yeah and and another thing that getting these late stacks is going to do is most teams or I'm sorry, most players are going to be, let's say with a, I don't know, that are being drafted in the 13th round or higher, maybe even 14th round or higher. Most of those players are going to be on 100% of rosters, right? If you're stacking late, what it's going to do, it's going to give you some players that aren't on 100% of rosters. So just sticking with the bills. If you're taking their wide receiver fourth in the drafts, that player isn't going to be on every single team. So it's going to give you some kind of an ownership edge. So I, I think people, uh, th those elite stacks are nice when they fall naturally, but value with this is still fantasy football. We still want closing line value. We still want to be getting players after their ADP, not ahead of their ADP as much as possible. All right, let's move over to player exposure. Um, it's not talked about nearly as much as roster construction, and we certainly won't get to it as much on this podcast either. Um, but a lot of guys are willing to have 40 to 50% ownership on certain players, even early round picks. Personally, I think that while it's true, uh, some of, you know, what I always get told is, well, no risk it, no biscuit, right? <laughs> um, you know, but to me, there's a certain amount of recklessness. And I feel like, and I want to show you something. I'm going to share my screen. And if producer Eddie would um, arrange this so that, uh, where is it? Of course... Ah, here it is. Can you see that? TJ? Yep, I can see it now. All right. All right. So basically what this is, is uh, you see average advance rate 17%. Um, and then underneath it, you see 2022. You see some names. Javante Williams, DeAndre Swift, Trey Lance, Kyle Pitts. These are the lowest advance rates, mm -hmm. right? So Javante Williams, second round, injured. Uh, Swift, early second round, underperformed, but a lot of it was because of an injury. Trey Lance was injured, uh, and he was going early for quarterbacks. Kyle Pitts, only 10 games, and he also underperformed. The year before, second round, 4% for Calvin Ridley, injured. Uh, Travis Etienne, 5% injured. Um, Cam Akers, 5% injured. I, I think the biggest difference, TJ, um, be, between um, best ball and DFS when it comes to player ownership is DFS, you know going into the week who's pretty healthy and who isn't. And the sure. chance of injury is pretty much even for everyone. When you are looking at best ball, if you're building over a five-month period, um, uh, you know, 100 lineups, um, you know, there's going to be injuries that happen in training camp. And if you've got 40, 50 percent of a second round guy, um, you've pretty much tanked your season. So I have a pretty strict 15 percent rule for the first two rounds. And about 25, maybe I'll go a little higher than that in the other rounds. 
Uh, what's your thoughts on those analogies and the effect of injuries on best ball versus season long in DFS? Yeah. I mean, obviously when it comes to injuries, um, like you said, DFS, the, the extreme, we might have one or two guys that, that are really relevant that we're watching up until kickoff for injuries. Whereas in best ball, if we're starting now and drafting till August, um, the, the number of injuries is potential injuries is just astronomical from now until week 17 of you know, the, the season, the end of the season, who's going to get injured. Who's going to be on your roster. It's a war of attrition, which is nice to be. Um, it's another good reason to be a high volume drafter because you're just naturally going to diversify. And that natural diversification is why I, I think having a rule, like I'm going to have a hundred percent exposure to this player is probably going to be pretty bad. If, if we're assuming a high volume. So the, the discussion of player exposure within your portfolio, let's say over a 150 team max in a best ball mania, it comes down to the when, the where, and the how much questions of your portfolio, right? When are you drafting the, the time of the year? Um, if you're drafting from April through August, ADPs are going to change. Your drafts are going to change. So naturally, when you're getting these players should change. If you're automatically trying to target a player in every draft, you're probably ignoring draft value. You're probably ignoring the ebb and flows um, of your own draft and of just the the um, the overall uh, um, draft um, flows of that season. Uh, where are you drafting? Not only like your draft slot, but where in the draft are you picking these players? As you mentioned, the earlier you are in your draft, probably the less exposure you're going to have to those guys. And almost by necessity, right? If you have the first pick in, in a draft, you're not going to have the same guys as you are when you have the 12th pick. And if you're taking that guy that has a, a 12th overall ADP in the early half of your draft every time, cause you like him, you're doing yourself a disservice. So, by drafting a lot, your volume is naturally going to diversify, especially those early round guys. As we get into the middle and later rounds, you can have higher exposure, whether, like you said, whether it be, um, you know, 25%, 50% or, or, you know, 75%. I think you like in the, in the 18th round of drafts, I think you could get pretty crazy with your player exposure. And that gets into the, how much you're drafting your, your volume. If you're drafting high volume, you're just naturally going to get a diversified pool of players. We should still do our homework. We should still limit our player pool. There's still guys that I'm only going to take when they're falling well below ADP. And there's guys that I will be more willing to reach for at specific times, but you're, you're never like going two rounds outside of, of um, these ranges because over the course of the entire summer, these things are going to flow. You're going to be able to get them, out of value, or you're going to be able to get them now and not have to take them when you're reaching for them later in the summer. Um, so thinking about the when, thinking about the where, thinking about the how should kind of naturally set up the, these uh, diversifications for you. And I, I think it probably is important to have some kind of cap if you are do, doing super high volume, but, uh, but taking those things into consideration, I think is more important than just like having these hard rules going into it if you are drafting for multiple months. Yeah, I, you know, like uh, late, I, I, in theory, I don't have any problem with a 50% ownership on a guy. Mm -hmm. I just never get there. Um, yeah, it's hard. Uh, it's hard to get 50% uh, uh, hard to uh, uh, even 40. I mean, I, I tend to tap out around 25, like in the early best ball, I, I think I did 75 and 
I had like early, I was taking Roshan Johnson in pretty much every draft. I was getting him in the 17th round. I had watched his tape. I was taking a lot of Israel Abanaconda in the 20th round. I had watched his tape. I liked him. And then what happened is other people watch tape and other analysts start promoting guys. And then all of a sudden, you know, Roshan Johnson was in the 12th, 13th round. Well, I've got all the, I got so much in the, in the 17th. I don't need in my view. Exactly. Um, yes. 12th, 13th round um, Roshan Johnson um, very often. So um, I just tend never to get there because of the ebb and flow of ADP. Um, the last point I'll make on this is um, especially for first and second round guys. I mean, these guys are, you know, and I, I talk about this. I do a companion piece, uh, an article every week. And I, I mentioned this example in the article this week that, you know, let's say, you know, everyone in the early rounds is there because they're really good at uh, what they do. Right. You know, there's nobody in the first, second round that, you know, should be in the eighth round. It just ADP is too efficient for that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um so say you like player A over player B, if you were going to do a projection, you know, it would be very, very rare if they're being drafted near each other for your projection to be more than 50 points over the course of the season, more than player B. That's right. three points a week, right? That's pretty significant, right? But if play, it, let's just say, it, then that's if you're right. If, but if player A gets hurt, and player B is healthy, you're going to be giving up 12 to 15 points a week. So that's the kind of thought I want the new people to think about. You know, you might like player A more than player B, but think about how many points you give up with injuries. Thoughts, TJ? Uh, I I think it's it's a good exercise just in terms of understanding the the risk associated with with these early round picks. Uh, Again, it's something that... I obviously you can't predict these injuries, but um, I, I do think it is a really good way if you go through whether it be that exercise or or just any type of projection model in really understanding um, why we want to be taking the risks where we are within the draft and why we don't want to be. Again, like you said, those early round guys, all of them have really big upside and and um, can be weak winners and, and definitely league winners. And we want not only do we want exposure to um, to our, our favorite guys, but we want to be able to account for fragility, account for when we're wrong, right? Exactly. And if these guys are going early and we don't like them, there's probably something that we're missing, right? If the consensus has them as a first round pick and we don't like them, naturally you're going to have like if you did something completely random um a, a random draft a, a hundred random drafts you're gonna have about like eight percent exposure to a guy in the first round if, if adps didn't move so you know maybe you only have a guy in the first round you don't like maybe on five percent of your team but you're still giving yourself an out for when you are wrong right yeah and and uh it's funny you mentioned that unfortunately i had to learn this the wrong way um the hard way uh, but my, I'm I'm about four and a half to five percent on the low end, fifteen percent on the high end. Um, some of that's going to come, you know, like you mentioned earlier, from when you pick, you know, and you don't have control over that. Um, but I remember a couple years ago, I was so high on Kenyon Drake in Arizona, 
He had blown up in the first, you know, once he had gotten traded over there and he completely bombed. Now I wasn't doing 150 back then. I was, but it, it was bad. I, I had yeah. one of my only losing seasons in 20 years of fantasy football. Um, and that was part of it. Another year, um, you know, I had come to the right conclusion, I think, to this day, that Alvin Kamara and Michael Thomas were going to struggle to both give first round uh, upside. So I mm-hmm. faded both of them. And of course, one year Kamara got hurt and the uh, next year Thomas got hurt and both of them went off. So you really have to be very careful with your decision making in those early rounds because that's where you see the most volatility in advance rates. Um, talk about that, TJ, and uh, if you have anything else before we uh, move on. Uh, just piggybacking off your your Camara, uh, Michael Thomas idea, I, it kind of reminds me of something that I, I like to do. And the reason those teammates um, are, are probably going high is not just because they're good players, but they're probably in a, a good offense or an offense we expect to be good. So something that I like to do in addition, like if you're playing on underdog, it's tracking your player exposure for you already. I do like to track my team exposure uh, and that's going to help you out with, uh, you know, maximizing some of the opportunities when we are right, but maybe not exactly right. So having the highest exposure to uh, teams or offenses that you like the most can kind of help you stay in your wheelhouse, kind of stay, stay in that pocket that you want to be in but maybe not having a hundred percent exposure to your example, Michael Thomas and Alvin Kamara, getting some of those other guys on the saints later in that uh, draft that might benefit from them not doing good, but the offense still performing as we expect it to. So um, just a, a little bonus. If you're, if you are new to these big tournaments, track how much exposure you have to each offense. So example, I mean, last year, uh, 6% of my players, um, were chief 6% of my players were bills. So that's kind of like a high end number of how many players uh, on your, on your, in your portfolio are going to be from a single team. So paying attention to those things, I think can help too. I love that. And I am going to do that because I did have not done that. Um, there were some other things I wanted to talk to about TJ with you, but we're out of time. Tell people again, where they can find you on Twitter and what's upcoming at four for four. And thank you as always for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, Twitter is at TJ Hernandez. That's where you'll you'll find uh, all of my random musings about best ball and other fantasy football topics. And uh, everything long form will go over to uh, 444 at 444 football or 444.com. Running a lot of of best ball um, content right now. Uh, Got the team, myself, Jennifer Akins, and the rest of the team uh, over there. As soon as the NFL draft is finished, John Paulson, the great ranker John Paulson, gets his first projections of the year up. We have rankings now, but he gets his full projections up. So that is really when we get things rolling. So I'd really encourage everybody to be locked into 4 for 4 uh, during draft weekend. And as soon as the draft is over, we, we really hit the ground running and we'll be rocking a lot of those rankings in these best ball streets. So uh, check it out. It'll be fun. Awesome. The great TJ Hernandez. Thank you, guys for checking in and listening to this podcast. Please don't forget to rate and review. Go visit us on YouTube and do the same thing. I would personally appreciate it. You guys have a great day, and we will see you next week when Rich Rebar of 
Sharp Football Analysis comes on and we're going to be discussing uh, his team needs articles that he's been working on. Take care, everyone.